We're coming now to really the watershed moment in Luke where we see Jesus and his disciples, well actually we just see Jesus' disciples declare who he is and in declaring who he is we see a lot of just importance with finding out that Jesus is more than just a man or a good teacher or a prophet. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to read one of the more familiar passages um, within the, the Gospels. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18, it says, And it happened, as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, What do the crowds say? That I, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for revealing yourself to us. And as we study the, the interesting implications of these questions that you asked your disciples, I pray that we would be conscious of knowing who we say you are. And so, Lord, help us to study and grow. We love you and thank you in your name. Amen. So, again, we have this huge moment where Jesus asks a question. And this question that he asks, really, the answer to that question sums up our entire faith. Who we say Jesus is, who other people say Jesus is, really sums up the Christian faith in a, simpler in a simple declaration, Peter actually has declared our entire faith structure, why we believe what we believe, who we believe in. And so this is a very important passage. It's important to see all of the things that come together throughout this passage. And one of the most important things that I think we don't see here in, this, in the passage when we read just through uh, is the geographical implications of what was being asked and where and when and why. And so we actually want to take a look at that. And we are going to, just so you guys know, we will be using mostly uh, the same account of the same story, but from Matthew chapter 16. So you can kind of leave your, <laughs> leave your Luke uh, marked, but then turn to Matthew chapter 16. And so Jesus asked his disciples, really, who the crowds said he was. Who are all these people talking about? When they, when they talk about Jesus... What are they saying about me is basically what he's, is what he's asking. Now, this can seem a bit like a random question when we read this passage through because Jesus was, we see that they're in Caesarea Philippi, again, from Matthew chapter 16. We see that. We see that they're, they're just kind of walking around and doing these things and ministering to the people. And it can kind of seem like a sort of random question or, or like Jesus is going through some sort of existential crisis um, in life and, and wondering what the people are saying about him. But really, this isn't what's going on. When he asked them these questions, it's important to look at where they were and their surroundings of this location because his question would have actually not, not just been very relevant to where they were, but also very profound. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that in depth right now. And so, as they go to Caesarea Philippi, let's just read in Matthew chapter 16. It says in verse 13, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so we, we have this city 
named Caesarea Philippi. It's, it's a namesake of uh, Herod uh, Philip, uh, Herod Philip, um, who was the son of Herod the Great. Um, this is one of the most well-known pagan communities, especially for Jewish culture. They would have known it very well as a pagan area. And that it had a lot of temples to various gods and humans. Um, and so, so this would have been a very pagan area. In fact, if you go all the way back to 1 Kings, you see King Jeroboam is, he actually, uh, this is the same area, Dan, the region of Dan, is the same area where King Jeroboam, for fear of some of the northern tribes of Israel joining up with Judah, he, he sets up two different uh, false idols. He, he sets up two golden calves, and one of them goes to Dan, this region, and he, the people worship it, and he says, These, behold your, your gods who delivered you uh, out of Egypt. And so the people in this area would have been very familiar and very well practiced into the pagan religions. You also have the Romans who, who followed through the Greeks, and the Greeks have a ton of stuff, and we're going to talk about that. But Herod the Great, uh, like I said, Philip's dad, placed a temple for Caesar Augustus there. And so this, this Caesar Augustus temple um, would have been, it was, I mean, Josephus writes about it. We see it's a marble temple. It's very large. It's very grandiose. And, and this is actually fascinating because Caesar Augustus, um, really like most Caesars, uh, required his subjects to declare, declare him to be a god. Not just a god, but god himself. Um, he believed that he was god. Uh, Caesar Augustus, all the Caesars really, but specifically it kind of started with Caesar Augustus and, and, and uh, he, he, he would have claimed deity um, and, and people actually would have um, pledged their, their lives to him. They would have given uh, tithes to him at these temples. They would have worshipped him at these temples. And so it's extremely likely that Jesus and his disciples would have at least been relatively close to this temple, if not there's a lot of scholars that actually believe that they were standing right there in front of the temple. Um, I'm actually a person that would believe that they were standing right there. And they would have been standing in the shadow of the temple of Augustus. And, and then Jesus asks him, asks the disciples, who do men say that I am? I, the, the son of man, am, as we see in, in Matthew chapter 16. And, and that's a fascinating question when you're talking about other people going into Caesar Augustus's temple and declaring him to, interestingly enough, not only be God, but they called him, Caesar Augustus was known as the son of God. And that is, a, that is an interesting thing because Jesus is actually the son of God, the real son of God. He calls himself the son of man. So we're going to talk about that in just a second. But you have this juxtaposition of like, all right, these people are saying who they think this guy is. Who do they say I am? Jesus is. And, and so this is interesting because... Well, it just means something that they were standing there. They would have been very poignant and it would have been very real for them to understand that Jesus was actually asking in this moment, we know what they say about that guy, about Caesar Augustus. I want to know what they say about me. And so this is actually a very interesting uh, question. The comparison between Augustus and, and Jesus is, is something that Jesus actually brings up he, he brings it up on purpose. He, he brings attention to the disciples um, as they're standing at this temple. Because one, you have the man, Caesar Augustus, who claims to be God, or at the very least, the son of God. 
uh, small g, by the way, but the Son of God. And he's a man, and he's elevating himself, and he is proclaiming himself, and he's having others elevate him, and others proclaim him to be this. And then you have Jesus, who actually is the Son of God. He is God himself. He's part of the Trinity. And he calls himself the Son of Man, which is fascinating because this... this, this Title is something that we see Jesus kind of interchange, Son of God, Son of Man. We see it uh, throughout Scripture, um, referring to the Messiah as the Son of God or the Son of Man. It's, it's not uncommon to see that. And, and so we're seeing this, this humility in Jesus in this moment, saying, like he says in, in Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 45, he says uh, he, he, was not, he did not come to be served, but to serve. And this is, this is the crazy comparison that Jesus is giving us in this moment of here's this man who's declaring so much about himself. He's declaring to be God. He's declaring to be the Son of God. He's, he's making people tithe and worship him and, and give him all of this uh, fealty and, and service and all these things. And then you have the actual Son of God who comes in humility, who comes in, in pure humbleness to serve the people, to be here for for man's sins, to pay for man's sins, to live a holy life, to live a perfect life. And, and it's interesting because holiness in Jesus' eyes did not equate to control. His, his deity did not mean that he was controlling over the people. It meant he came to serve, which is just fascinating because even within church hierarchy, I mean, we see it in the world all the time, but even within church hierarchy, we, we have men and women who, who lord things over others, thinking that they have earned this position. And it's interesting because Jesus actually shows us the exact opposite, that we are to deny ourselves, that we are to serve others, that we are to give of ourselves to them for their good. Not, not for our benefit, but for their benefit. And so this is something that we see regularly throughout Jesus' life. And here we see it again. He's, he's literally standing at the foot of a man who calls himself God and then asking his disciples, who do, who do men say that I, the actual son of God, am? And that's interesting. And so looking at this temple to a man who claimed to be God, it's, it's very appropriate time for Jesus to ask his, his disciples, his followers, who they said he was. And we hear similar answers today of people saying that the, the answers that the disciples give him. So here in Matthew 16, we also saw it in Luke chapter 9. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This is a very common answer even today is that you hear people say, well, Jesus was a, a prophet or a teacher, or some people would say that he was just a good man, or there, there are other people that would say he, he was a liar and a, and a swindler and all these other things. But it's very common that people have these answers. What's interesting is, even in secular archaeology, it's very commonly accepted that Jesus was a, a, a historical figure, a real person that actually lived here on this earth. Now, how those people view him and what they view, that varies and differs. Um, but it is a commonly accepted thing that Jesus was actually real. Um, not many people deny that 
that Jesus was real. But notice that he's, he's more concerned, not about his reality, obviously. He's, he's more concerned with who people are saying he is. So I know that people know I'm here. I know Jesus knew that people were following him. Obviously, we just got finished with feeding, I mean, upwards of 15,000 people miraculously. He knows that people know he's here, but he's wondering. And, I, and again, I, I think this is more of a, a conversation for the disciples than it is for Jesus, because I don't know that Jesus wondered a whole lot about certain things. But like, Jesus wants to know, okay, so all these people that I just fed miraculously, that, that God fed through a miracle, who are they saying that I am? Because they're not denying my reality, but they may be missing the mark on why I'm here and, and what I'm here to do. And so this is not an uncommon thing for us to hear today. It was not an uncommon thing for them to hear back then is that well, he's a good man, or he's a, he's a miracle worker, or all of these things. And, and while those things are true, they're kind of half-truths. Because Jesus is so much more than just a good teacher, or a morally acceptable man. Jesus is God. Jesus is king. Jesus is ruler of all. And that is something that I think in these questions to to his disciples, these two simple questions of who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am, I think that Jesus is trying to draw out of them that idea of I am, like Jesus is more than just a good teacher. He is more than just a guy who can perform miracles and feed lots of people or cause, you know, the lame to walk and the blind to see. He's more than that. And Jesus is still, even today, he's concerned with who we say, who we believe he is. Because it's one thing to say who he is. It's another thing to believe. So do we believe that he's just a teacher, a prophet, a good guy? Um, and, and we have that idea of, well, this is, this is who Jesus is and we follow him for a long time or we believe in him a long time. But have we actually allowed that to change us? And I think that's what he wants people to answer even today in these questions. And he goes more personal with his disciples, and that's interesting because it doesn't matter what the crowd thinks about Jesus. We, we, most of us are part of a church community, um, whether it's in person or online, whatever it may be. Most of us are a part of that community, and that's good. That's not a bad thing. In fact, that's biblical. But that community does not speak for me on who I think Jesus is. Um, I, I don't get to ride the coattails is one of the common phrases that we hear of people into, uh, of other people's faith into relationship with Jesus. I can't do that. That's not, that's not an option. It matters what I believe. It matters who I think Jesus is. So the crowds can say whatever they want to say. The church can say whatever it wants to say. And that's a good thing. It can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. Whatever it may be if you have a healthy church versus an unhealthy church. But it matters what I say, what I believe, who I believe Jesus is. And so he asks them, he, he asks them who they think he is. Who do you think I am is what he asks. And Peter who so regularly can seem to put his foot in his mouth, like we, we do that too, I do that regularly. 
Peter has this uncanny ability to have some of the lowest lows in the moments of his bravery and his boldness and some of the highest highs in his bravery and boldness. And this is one of these shining moments for Peter. This is a soaring moment because he declares not just rightly who Jesus is, but also boldly who Jesus is. He is the Christ of God. And and you see this in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This This is a bold declaration, but right there, that sums up our faith. Right there, we have who we believe Jesus is. If you're wondering how to put into words what you think about Jesus, if you, if you have faith in him, right there is a good example. And, and Jesus actually acknowledges that and rewards him for it in a second. And it says this is, uh, he, he talks to Peter about how significant it is because it puts Jesus on a different level than a prophet, a teacher, or a good man. And importantly, again, let's not forget, it puts him on a different level than Caesar Augustus. It puts him on a different level than the other gods or whatever beings, uh, images, carvings that people may worship. And so in this moment, in this place where so many people are declaring Caesar Augustus to be the son of God, Peter declares boldly and correctly that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. And this is very significant. And so being the Christ, being the Messiah, being the son of God means that he is God and that he came for more than just teachings and miracles. He came to save the world. And so that's important because this is, I know that it doesn't seem like that's all the things that Peter is saying because he has a very simple thing, but wrapped up in everything that, that Peter just said, he is saying that Jesus is, is the son of God, which means he is God, which means he is the Christ, which means that he is the Messiah, which means he came to save the world. And that was what the Jewish culture was waiting for in this moment. And so in that one sentence, that one little tiny declaration is everything about who Jesus Christ is. Now, Jesus praises Peter with a very famous and actually just as geographically important uh, declaration over Peter, basically. So let's read on here in Matthew. It says in verse 16 of chapter 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, so Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, so Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So, excuse me, the first interesting thing to note here is that Jesus expresses a blessing to Simon or or Peter, Um, but he, he reveals that it is the work of God for Peter to be able to acknowledge who Jesus even is. There's, there's this, well, let's just read what scripture has to say in first Corinthians chapter two, verse 14, it says this, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. This is an indicator that God reveals himself to us. It is part of his sovereignty. Our knowledge of God comes through his sovereignty and his 
if you want to say, choice for us. It's, it's the idea that God has revealed this to Peter. This is a big statement, and, and certainly Peter um, was wise enough to say it and bold enough to say it. But God is the one who actually reveals those truths to us, the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Then Jesus does something even more strange. He refers, or not strange, I shouldn't say strange. He does something more impressive uh, with Peter here. And he, he references Simon as Peter from this point on. So Peter is that word Petros, which means kind of pebble. <laughs> like like think, think a, a, a tiny stone. He then says that on this rock, which is Petra, uh, that he would build his church. Now, there's some arguments and there's, there's an entire sect of Christianity um, that, that believes that that means that Peter is, you know, the, the father of the church, the ecclesia, the, the, the universal church, whatever you want to say. Um, this is not that reference to Peter as being that um, because Jesus wasn't actually talking about Peter when he said, on this rock, I will build my church. What he's saying is it's a reference to the truth of the statement that Peter said. The truth of the statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that statement is the rock that Jesus would build his church on. You see, what that means is that if our church declares anything but Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, well then that eliminates us from being a, a Christian church, if that makes sense. And so, so this statement that Peter does, said here, that, that, that Christ Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that truth is the truth that Jesus Christ will build. That is the rock, if you will, the Petra, that Jesus Christ will build his church on. And that's significant for other geographical reasons. You see, there's right next to the, C the temple of Caesar Augustus, and this is where this kind of gets cool. Okay, it's already been cool. <laughs> but right next to the C temple of Caesar Augustus, literally right next door, um, was a temple to the god Pan. Now, this was a Greek god originally, and much like most Greek gods, the Romans kind of took it when they, when they invaded. But Jesus was going to build his church on this rock, this truth. And then he says something, he says in verse 18, um, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This is fascinating because this church that Jesus would establish would overcome all the evils of the world, all the, all the atrocities of the world. That's kind of what the implication is. And the temple of Pan was standing right there. And right there in their eyes, they saw one of the most vile, terrible places that, that ancient mythology and ancient religion, pagan religion, had to offer. Pan was a, a Greek god, kind of Roman, and he was the half man, half goat. You guys have probably seen pictures of the little uh, bamboo reed playing, flute playing um, god. This was Pan. And, and he was worshipped right alongside of Augustus right there. And the reason why is because they had what was called Pan's Grotto there, and a cave stood there, Pan's Cave as well. And what would happen is people some, somewhere along the line sacrificing to Pan would uh, take their, their infant child, 
Um, and they would go to the top of this big rock um, with the cave at the bottom and a, and a natural wellspring of water coming up that feeds into the Jordan. And they would go to the top of this cliff and they would throw their children off of the side of the cliff. And I know that this is graphic, but if the child hit the water and then sank, it meant that their sacrifice was accepted. If the child hit the water and then was dashed against the rocks, um, it meant that their sacrifice was rejected. Um, either way, the child's life was, was gone. And so this... Uh, this idea of worshiping in this way was well known again throughout Israel, but it also was very common practice. And so this place had a sense of evil about it. In, in, this, in this watery grave where these children were, were sacrificed was also a, a mythological belief that that is where the Greek goddesses would hibernate for the winter. Um, they believed that it was a portal from the the underworld to our world uh, that gods would use, gods and goddesses would use to, to, tra um, to traverse the, the different worlds. And <clears throat> this pagan worship, other, other forms of pagan worship were going on. Obviously, Pan was, Pan was uh, debauched in many ways. I mean, you had, um, well, orgies and, and bestiality and all sorts of different stuff that we won't really get into. But this cave was well known at the time. The cave at the bottom of the hill was well known at the time of, get this, the gates of hell. That, that is what ancient religions and, and even the people of that time called that cave. They called it the gates of hell. The gods would use this, this as a, that portal between their world and the physical world. And this vivid picture that the disciples and Jesus are standing right there as they're looking at this very place where people call the gates of hell because of, because of the terrible child sacrifice that was happening. This vivid picture was painted for the disciples to see that the message of Christ would overcome all of the evils of this world. That is what Jesus is saying here when he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the truth that he is the Christ, the Son of God. That's important. Because we are to be messengers of the good news. We are to carry the hope of Christ to the very gates of hell. In, 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 this, in this case, it was a very literal place that they were standing right in front of. And, and we attack the evils of this world as Christians with the truth of Jesus Christ, his hope, his forgiveness, his new life. That is what we use to attack this world. It, it, well, we're not going to go into the politics of it. We have a job to do, and that is to carry the, the hope and the love of Jesus Christ to the entire world. And Jesus was saying that his church, the truth of who he was, would overcome this evil place, this temple of Pan, and that his forgiveness would cover even those who had done and have done really the worst things imaginable. He's saying don't lose hope because the message that we are preaching, that, that, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that message of hope was going to overcome all of those evils. It would not, those gates are stationary gates first off, so they don't attack anyway. But our message of truth and hope will overcome those gates. Our, our message of Jesus Christ being the Son of the living God 
will overcome the evils of those gates. And so really to wrap this up, we need to ask the question to ourselves personally, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to me? Because we've talked about who Caesar Augustus was. We've talked about who the God of Pan was. We know who Peter says Jesus is. But the question that Jesus asks his disciples here is the most important question for us to answer in our own personal life as well. Is he a religious leader? Is he a miracle worker? Is he a prophet? Is he just a, a, a teacher? Or, or even more, is he just a good man? Is he just somebody who did good things and taught people to love each other and, and kind of the kumbaya, hippie, whatever? Is that all Jesus is? I think that these are aspects of who Jesus was. And, and many of us will immediately answer in the affirmative, well, Jesus is God. We, many of us would confidently say that, especially if we have grown up in the church, we know the answer, we know the Sunday school answer, that Jesus is God. And we would confidently say it. We would immediately say that he is God because we are in church, <laughs> because that's the answer that we think we're supposed to give. And some of us even believe it. But we need to know with confidence, like the confidence that Peter shouted out, that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the Son of God that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, and that he is the Savior of the world. That means that he is God as well. He is King. And the, the knowledge of these things will spur us into action, will spur us into changed life. We may know that he's the Messiah. We may know that he died to forgive us out of our sins. We may know that he paid the debt that we owed, as far as our sins against a holy and righteous God. We may know all of those answers, but sometimes we do not allow those answers to actually change our actions because we still don't have that right understanding of what it means for Jesus Christ to be king over our lives. It's one thing to know the answer and it's something entirely different to believe it and allow that knowledge to change how we act and how we live our lives and who we follow and how we interact with the world. Because the world, if you look around, it feels like sometimes those gates of hell, that evil, sometimes it feels like it's overcoming us. But that is not the message that Jesus gives here. And it's not the message that we are to declare to the world. And so I ask you, and we'll end with this one question, who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you came. And Lord, as we look at some of the geogra geography of, of what we're studying today and some of the interesting facts and figures and interesting just tidbits of where you were when you were asking these questions, Lord, help us understand the seriousness of this, of this entire message that you were giving here to Peter and the disciples. Lord, help us to confidently and boldly proclaim to the world that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that the implications of that are that you are the only one who can save. And so, Lord, I, I pray for the people who feel like they may be too far gone, 
that they've done too many bad things, that, they, that you cannot forgive them. Lord, I pray that they would take confidence and hope knowing that you overcome all of that. You are able to forgive all of that. You are able to show us and, and care for us and love us, Lord, perfectly. I pray that they would rest in that love. And for those of us who have maybe followed you for a long time, I pray that we would start treating you as our king and that we'd start looking to you for the answers in everything that we do. We love you so much and we thank you in your name.